Happy New Year, everyone. Today's episode is from the Talking Blues Archives, featuring an interview with Bill Henderson from the band Chilliwack. This interview was done around 2004 when I was trying to develop another project, which unfortunately never got off the ground. However, I always thought this was a great interview, so it's my pleasure to share this with you. I began the interview, as I do with many of my interviews, asking Bill how he first got into music. I, uh, you know, heard uh, guitar, some guitar stuff on the radio, electric guitar stuff when I was a kid in the 50s, and uh, I asked my dad what it was, and he says electric guitar, and I said, I want to do that. And it was simple, like it was that thought in my mind when I heard it, it was excited me in a certain way and I wanted to do it. So the re for years after that I pursued, you know, playing guitar, trying to learn how to play guitar and getting a guitar and and getting lessons and that screwed up. I hated the lessons and so, you know, then I got another guitar and I'll do it myself and I figured stuff out myself. Um, and then it grew and I, I had meanwhile had some lessons on piano and some on saxophone and um, it grew and, and then I got little bands and stuff and um, then I went to, uh, I actually uh, started playing jazz and because I was learning all these chords, you know, all these great chords and uh, I loved them and, and uh, so I got a job playing in a lounge in Edmonton. I was living in, I was in grade 12 and uh, I was living on my own at that time and I supported myself playing in this lounge on the weekends and playing uh, standards. You know, and that, that's where I actually got my, my musical grounding was in playing things like Misty and When Sunny Gets Blue and Sunday Kind of Love and, and uh, all, all of that sort of stuff, you know, all this nice changes and everything. And, and, and then that would lead easily to jazz because of the kind of the chord changes and everything. So I was involved that way and then I went to university and got uh, some classical training. I'd heard classical music for the first time when I went to university. And, that's all they would teach was classical music, you know, forget the guitar, they didn't want to have anything to do with my guitar. And, uh, but I learned a whole bunch of really neat stuff, good theory stuff, but theory and also history, you know, hearing, I remember going to hear, uh, they had this great thing, uh, every Wednesday noon hour, I think it was, they would play, uh, a string quartet would do a uh, Beethoven uh, string quartet. They started right at the beginning, and every week they, they moved to the next one and the next one. And I, I don't know if that took a couple of years to happen or what, I can't remember. But I would go to them all the time, and it was really interesting because I didn't know how to listen to that music. I had no idea. I didn't know how, it didn't, sort of didn't sound like music to me, you know. I, so I, I was like, wow, like how, what, what's going on with this stuff? And, and uh, so my appreciation of that gradually grew over these years. And, and of course, Beethoven, when you listen to Beethoven, the way his music changed over the course of his life, by the time we got to the end, he was sounding like Bartok and, and all kinds of people that would come later. He was sounding really, uh, woo, you know, some, some interesting sounds coming out of there that were, they started sounding like Mozart and he ended up sounding like the more modern people. So anyway, that was a great uh, thing for me to get that kind of background. And then, uh, and I'd completely given up on rock and roll. Because, you know, rock and roll it was great when it was Elvis, it was great when it was Buddy Holly, it was great when it was the Everleys, and that was cool and everything. But then when it became the Shirelles and the, all this kind of stuff, it was like, what the hell is that, you know? Where are these guys going like this, you know, with all this energy? It's not happening anymore. It's this other kind of hippie, th you know, trippy type thing, which I couldn't, I just couldn't get into it, you know? So, uh, so I was out of rock and roll, and then, and then the Beatles came along, and... Uh, I never thought anything about them until I happened to see Hard Day's Night. I, just, I saw the poster with a friend and said, that looks interesting. We went in. 
and so on. I came out of there wanting to be a songwriter and put my classical guitar away and got my electric out from under the bed and started trying to write songs. Wow. Yeah. Um, do you remember what that <coughs> songs were when you first heard it, the electric guitar on the radio? No, but it was probably rockabilly. It was probably, I don't know, it might have been country, or it could, you know, it could have been Eddie Cochran, it could have been, uh, it could have been a Don Gibson thing, uh, with just a little, or, you know, Johnny Cash always had uh, Luther Perkins doing that, you know, all that sort of, all of the kind of stuff he played, uh, where the, they put the electric guitar right out front, and uh, it might have been something like that, I don't know. It was just the sound of it. And to this day, that's I got back into rock and roll. You know, I had my ten years off between '87 and '97, and uh, doing other things, playing acoustic music and stuff like that. But I really missed the uh, electric. I missed the sound of it, and I missed the bass and the drums and stuff. So, yeah. And I'd had calls. I'm getting way ahead. But I'm just ra rambling here. Whatever. Um, when you decided, or when you saw Hard Day's Night and decided that, yeah, I want to bring up the electric guitar. By then, had you decided that you're Life choice was going to be a musician, being a musician. Or oh yeah. So it could have been jazz, or it could have been classical. Yeah, yeah. And to this day, I don't actually really care. I could go out. I could go back to playing. If you know, when I'm like in my seventies, if no one will listen to me as a as a rocker, I know I can go and play in some place and just play changes while people eat. You know, and 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 make, and, and and I'll probably do that. If, if it comes to that, I don't have any, I have no, I'm not, I really don't care about, uh, I mean, I do, I do, I want to be successful, you know, and it's great to have, to be able to go out and play and have a big audience and they're just there to hear you. I mean, that's fantastic, that's a treat, I love it, absolutely love it. But if it came down to, you know, a choice between other kinds of work and, and, and just playing a guitar in a, in a restaurant or something, I'd play the guitar in the restaurant, absolutely. Can you just paint a picture of what the, the music scene was like in Canada or in your neck of the woods at that point? I mean, for you to think, I'm going to get into rock and roll, what did that mean? And yeah, it was, okay, there was the Beatles, and that got me listening to, to rock again. I started turning on the radio and, and listened to what, what, what all the stuff was that was going on. And there was a whole bunch of stuff I hated, but I loved the Beatles. Some of the Stones I liked. Uh, and some of the Engl other, Engl I liked the English stuff a lot. I really dug it. And then I started hearing uh, the bands from San Francisco. They'd come up into Vancouver, heard the Grateful Dead and uh, Daily Flash and uh, Jefferson Airplane and uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. I heard them with Janis Joplin the first night she was with the band. <laughs> and uh, I started hearing this stuff and I, and I really liked that. I really liked the San Francisco thing because really they were all folkies playing rock and that really re I, I could really relate to that because I, I missed in my little essay there about my background but I'd done folk for a while too folk music and um, so uh, so it felt like the rock thing suddenly was an opportunity it felt like there was an opportunity that that the Beatles and a few other people had just opened up the world somehow so that now you could have an idea. You didn't have to sound like the last schlocky little number. You could have an idea that was exciting to you, that had you know driving guitars and stuff in it, and you'd have a shot. You know, there'd be ears out there for you. So so uh, do it. You know that that's the way it felt to me. It felt like there was lots of opportunity. But in terms of 
the, the music scene in your town, and I don't know if it's Edmonton Yeah, it was Vancouver at that time. What was that like in terms of somebody who's Canadian who wants to make it on the scene? Well, nobody in Vancouver, almost nobody, was thinking about records in the music scene in Vancouver. They were playing R&B, and they are playing some rock, rock, R&B, that kind of stuff. And of course, there were the jazzers doing their thing and the folkies doing their thing. Everybody was doing their thing, uh, but nobody was really thinking about uh, making a record. There were Terry Jacks had done it. There were a few exceptions, but but not much. Um, and so it was just the music. It wasn't. It was about making a living as a musician and playing the music that you liked. But it wasn't about getting a hit record. Uh, there were very few people who had actually ventured into that area. Uh, a couple. There was the classics, Terry Jacks. Um, actually, what came out of, uh, I don't know if you remember the song Wildflower, it was a huge, huge song. It came out of Vancouver, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouvers, and uh, that happened at that time too. So there were, there were a few things, but, but not that much. And we were the first ones in the, the real rock, uh, sort of progressive rock, the new rock, the psychedelic rock. We were the first ones to actually go and make serious recordings. We went down to LA and and um, and recorded with Valiant Records, which was a little independent that was uh, sold to Warner Brothers about two years later, a year and a half after we started with them. And we had you know we did a single. We went into Columbia Studios. We got the night shift that was cheaper. You know, we went from. I don't know when it was, six at night to six in the morning or something, we recorded two sides, right? And it uh, came out as a single. It was number, went to number three in Chum, in, uh, which was the only chart in Canada of any, that anyone would recognize was Chum. And uh, so we, we broke through with, with that. And we actually did things like, uh, out of nowhere, like without managers and promotion people, there wasn't, you know, we did have a manager. That's, we did have a manager, i got to say that, but, we, but that was it. And, we, we did a billboard in Vancouver, you know, we, we, we figured out, well, we phoned up and found out what it cost, and then found this billboard on, on Burrard, Burrard and, uh, and 4th Avenue, and 4th was kind of a, a center for, for sort of the new psychedelic music and stuff. We got this billboard, and, and our name was The Collectors, and we just went, we put the, up on it, The Collectors Are Among You, in great big black letters on a white background, and that was, that was it, you know, that was our... What year was this? That was uh, <laughs> 60, that would have been 67, I think. Oh, because there's a famous thing about the Grand Funk buying that huge billboard in Times Square. Oh. And, and that was in 71 or something, so oh. it was after that, so 69 or something. Yeah, yeah. And we just, we just went ahead and did it, you know, and it <laughs> didn't cost too much. I think it cost 50 bucks. <laughs> what was the game plan? Or was there a game plan? Was it just, let's play, let's get as many gigs as possible and we'll make a living out of it? No, no, our game plan was let's make records and, and uh, you know, and get out there and, and play with all the big bands and get famous and, you know, blow them off the stage and be, be the big guys, you know. We didn't have a, a real business game plan of, of any kind, really. We did not have uh, management that was uh, well organized and, uh, good administration or anything like that. If I talk to bands from Toronto, they would say in the 70s, early 70s, that they would basically, their goal was to play on the Young Street Strip, and that before they got there, they would be playing Northern Ontario, 
campus casing and all those places, get to the M3 strip and hopefully get noticed and get a record deal. Yeah. What was what was it like for you in terms of in Vancouver the scene and what you thought you had to do in order to Well uh you're going back. You're going back. So pre-record contract, what what you're what was happening for us was we were playing in a we had a we're the house band in a strip bar, right? And so we played R&B, and uh, but as soon as that band came together, it had been an R&B band before with some of the members. They came together. I joined. And a couple other people were in the band that were very creative, and we just went, you know, this is this is okay. We're making a living doing this, but here's what we want to do. And we wrote all these songs, and virtually every day we'd have a new song, and and one out of three of those songs would go into our set. So it wasn't too long before we weren't playing R&B anymore. And and what happened was all the people from Fourth Avenue with the long hair that would come up from California or whatever were going to play in Vancouver. They'd hear about this band and they'd come down and see us. And the word spread that there was this band doing all this wild music because we were writing really unusual stuff. You should hear some of this shit. It was pretty far out. It was neat stuff and, uh, and very different. Um, so what that did was attract attention. And then a, a guy from L.A. who was living in Vancouver who had a friend with a record company in L.A., Valiant Records, this guy, Jack Hershorn, he became our manager. He said, I can get you some money, make a demo, we'll send it down to my friend down there. If he likes it, then we'll, we'll, we'll get, you know, you'll make a, a record. Well, that's what we wanted to do. So that's how it worked for us, was we, we created a, a buzz and stuff gravitated to us. After that, once there was a record contract, once there was a, a single and then another single, um, for us it was get down to California and break out into the into the music industry because there was no real music industry in in Western Canada that's for sure and really there wasn't in, in Toronto why there was this very very small thing the thing for us was LA was uh, 1500 miles away San Francisco was a thousand miles away Toronto was three so so yeah. in, in terms of the idea did it ever being Canadian or being located in Canada was that ever an issue, or did you ever think of it as um, an obstacle or anything like that? Or was it just, let's make music, let's go to the States? Yeah, it, it was, let's make music, let's go to the States, that's where, they're, that's where it's happening, and that's where we'll have an opportunity to, uh, to get somewhere. And we did that, and we lived there for a year, basically. Um, but it was really hard on our families, it was hard, hard on our lives, it wasn't... I mean, it was working career-wise fantastically. It makes such a difference to be where it's happening. It was, you know, you just knew what, to, what choices to make because it was clear it was all around you. You knew what choices to make and you would, and I'm talking about musical choices and all, as well as career choices. But we didn't like it, you know. Uh, ultimately, we wanted to come back to, to, to Canada. And we did, and we did that. After our first album, we decided that's it. We're coming back to, Van to Vancouver. We're going to live in Vancouver. We're going to grow this thing in Canada, and it's, we're going to grow it until it's real big, and then it'll roll down into the states, which was a completely wrong paradigm. Didn't work then. It's starting to be possible now. It is kind of being possible now, but that was—we're talking 30 years ago. It was not possible to do that. <laughs> did you have any Canadian musical heroes, or did such a thing exist? 
Um, well, David Clayton Thomas brainwashed. I remember that that uh, record. I, I wasn't. A, I, I guess David wasn't a hero of mine. I didn't really know anything about him, but I remember the record. And the record just slayed me. I loved it. I loved the piano break in the center. It absolutely blew my mind because this guy was playing. Because I see, I had just come out of university. And I was into playing. Maybe we could do this song in three keys at once, you know? <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if you were playing in F and I was playing in G? You know, and I mean, it was all kinds of uh, bizarre stuff that I, was, that I was interested in doing with music. And uh, so when I heard that, the piano thing, which went through about five keys in, about, uh, in one bar or something, I can't remember it very well now, but I just remember it was very unusual and very exciting, too. It was rhythm rhythmically neat and everything. So that was, a, yeah, I loved that thing. So were you aware that he was Canadian? I mean, was, it, was there a distinction between nationalities? Or uh, you know, I think there were a lot of things happened that were Canadian and we weren't aware they were Canadian, no. Uh, um, that one, I, I, I think someone told me. There were other guys that were more aware of that stuff than me. And, and guys who had been in the scene, like I'd been doing this university thing and the folk thing and all that sort of stuff. But there were guys, like we talked about earlier, who had learned all the guitar parts to all the hit songs and actually were kind of historians. They, they knew, and so they would have known that David was not American, that he was Canadian, you know. Um, and other than that, there wasn't, I don't think there was anything Canadian that, you know, Bonnie Dobson, actually. Bonnie Dobson, I thought she was fantastic, but she was a folk singer. Yeah. But it wasn't the case that we got to make it in Canada or it was just no nationality was not a there was I mean making it in Canada was when we started was just not it just wasn't something we would imagine would happen you make it down there and then you know then Canada will recognize you I mean that's just the way it was you know well, how did the collectors or how did you become Chilliwack or what happened well we we sort of um, were our music was changing from when we first started with the the collectors, uh, the way I thought of our mandate was we'll break every rule we can find, as many rules as we can break and get it into a song. That's what we'll do. And uh, so that produced a kind of music that was very mental, kind of jagged feeling. Um, and then I heard, I'd never heard blues. Um, you know, I lived in on Vancouver Island most of my life as a kid. I'd heard country there. I never, I never heard blues. I remember seeing a poster for T-Bone Walker in Nanaimo, but I had no idea what it was. And I just thought, what a name, T-Bone Walker, and there he was doing splits, right? And, and, uh, and then I moved to Fort St. John, which is way up in northern BC. Uh, so there was just no black music around. And, I just, and, then, and then I got in this band. It was an R&B band, which I had said. I knew nothing about R&B. They said, here are the songs. I went home. I figured out the songs, and I, I played the songs, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what groove really was, you know. And so anyway, here we were in this band that was playing all this wild stuff, and we were playing at the Fillmore. And uh, one of the times we played there, we played with Albert King. And uh, after we played, he came on, right? And that was my introduction to the blues, because I actually saw someone playing it, and I heard what he was doing, and it was like an arrow through your heart with the most simple he wasn't breaking any rules. It wasn't about breaking rules. To me, it was all about breaking rules. You know, I was young. I was like, ah, fuck, we'll do this, we'll do that, and you know, we'll, we'll change the world. You know, Albert's thing wasn't about changing the world at all. You know, it was about it was about taking what was there 
the simple good stuff that was there and just going, boom, here it is. And it was incredible. Blew my mind. So that changed my direction. And uh, we started, we, we, we just changed it. And we, we did a lot more jamming after that. And, and our jams started to grow and grow. And, and we were less psychedelic. We were more kind of blues oriented, a little more of that kind of feeling to it. Um, so we were changing. And, and then our lead singer left. He, he wasn't really into the jamming thing. Yeah, I think he always felt like a fish out of water when we started doing that. Didn't know quite what to do with it. Um, and so that meant we had a new voice. I became the voice of the band uh, and new musical style. So we, and that was in 1969. Um, so we changed our name. And was the game plan still the same? So you became Chilliwack at that point. Yeah, we became Chilliwack. By then, we had decided we were living in Canada, not the States. Um, we still made records. We still signed to American companies. We went through Warner's and uh, A&M. Actually, Chilliwack's first, first recording was, was uh, we signed with uh, London Records in Canada. London Parrot was our, our first, uh, first record. And so, you know, the game plan was always to try and you know, try and be successful being recording artists. You know. How did you come up with the name Chilliwack? I mean, I know it's a city, but yeah, it's an I'm Indian always word. curious about bands who name themselves after a city or whatever. Yeah. Like Toronto or Chicago or whatever. Yeah, right, right. Well, uh, it wouldn't have been my first choice, but uh, we, in the band prior to this, the Collectors, we didn't come up with our name. We tried and tried and tried to come up with a name of the democratic process where everybody was, was happy, and we never found one. So we'd, we'd made our first single, and the label copy was going to be, was, was about to be uh, set, and the record company phoned us up and said, listen, you guys, <laughs> you're, either ch you're either the collectors or the connection. Take your pick. They'd come up with a couple names anyway, so we picked the collectors. So that was a horrible experience. And then we wanted to change our name. Well, what to change it to? Oh my God, here we go again. And uh, so the drummer just happened to one day say, well, what about Chilliwack? And I looked at him like... And he said, well, you know, we're do the thing we were doing at the time, we were doing a lot of Indian type of stuff with, or sort of quasi-Indian type of stuff with the, you know, toms and drones and this kind of stuff going on and, and uh, so, and chanting and uh, all that and, and uh, so it sort of fit because it was an Indian word. It means valley of many streams. So you get lots of musical options, you know. Did anybody actually come out of Chilliwack? Or? No. Oh, really? No. Okay. no. And how's the town, or how did the town... Take look? it? Yeah. <laughs> like, did you have your own street or... <laughs> 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 uh, city or anything like that? No, no, I did get, you know, the, after many years of the band and lots of, lots of records and everything, they, uh, they said, well, you know, you've been... Uh, using our name for a long time. Why don't you come out and uh, be a part of our uh, arts center here. We're going to do some presentations. We're going to So I got sort of involved with them a little bit like that. Uh, but no, there's, there's no real uh, recognition particularly back and forth. Um, around that time, a little after the Canadian content rule was introduced, what was your feeling about that concept of the Canadian content rule? I didn't know much about it. 
I didn't think much about it. I heard what Terry Jacks thought, and Terry said, well, when I go down to the States with my record now, they, they, and I tell them it's, a, it's doing really well in Canada, they say, yeah, but they had to play it. So he said, I don't like it. It makes it harder for me to sell my records in the States. Um, and that made some sense to me. Um, I didn't understand what the, the basic sort of um, socialist idea behind it what really was and what the whole background of that was. I think I was probably fairly right-wing at that point. Um, uh, but I've since come to understand what, it, what it's really about, you know, and what it means to be the little guy and the big guy and how sometimes things have to be adjusted or, other, or else one little guy gets trumped. <laughs> yeah. But do you think Chilliwack benefited from the CanCon regulations? Oh, yeah. But, you know, we started off without it, and, and we were doing fine without it. Uh, we did better with it, but I'm not sure it was that that was the reason particularly. I mean, the band had really matured a lot by the time we got to, uh, you know, Fly at Night and Baby Blue, and, uh, and then by the time we got to My Girl and, and I Believe and stuff like that, we, we didn't, uh, matured a great deal. The music had changed a lot, and I'm sure that had the most to do with our success, more, more I think, than CanCon. But, I mean, uh, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure it helped. Because um, I think also as the years went, went by, there was a natural, I don't know how natural it is, but there was a, a, um, a lessening of creativity on the part of radio. And, you know, FM radio started in a burst of creativity. K-San in, in, in uh, San Francisco played our, our What Love Sweet, which was an 18-minute piece, uh, which took up the whole side of one, our first album. They played it like it was a single. And they played all kinds of wild stuff. And they played what they felt like. That was the whole thing with, 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 with FM. They could do what they wanted because AM at this had gotten, you know, been fairly tightened down. But then, of course, that all changed. Now it got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And Well, how are we going to choose what to play? Well, let's see what other people are playing. Well, let's see what's really successful. Oh, well, let's see what's happening in the United States, right? So, so CanCon had to happen. Because uh, people's mentality, you know, the mentality of the people who were programming radio was no longer the freewheeling, hey, I like this song, well, check this out, see what you think. No way. I would presume this is something with the collectors, but do you remember the first time you heard your, a single being played on the radio? Yeah, one of ours? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, with Can the collectors. Can you tell me what that felt like and what that setting was like? Oh, it was very, very exciting. It was really exciting, yeah. I phoned the radio station up and thanked them for playing it, right? <laughs> it was, was a guy named Peter Starr uh, in, uh, it was CKLG in Vancouver. He said, oh, we play it because it's a great record. <laughs> and what was the record? It was called uh, um, Looking at a Baby. It was the first single, and uh, yeah. Can you maybe elaborate on that feeling of hearing it? Because you probably didn't expect to hear it. It was just came out of the oh, tour. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I mean, I always had the radio on in those days, and so I guess I expected it at some point because we'd put it out. I know how those things work, but we had put it out, so I was hoping to hear it at least. Whether I was expecting it, I don't know. But um, oh, it was just, uh, it's hard to describe because, um, you know, it's very hard to describe because uh, music is, is very physical stuff, and especially it was for me when I was younger. And, and, and 
there were there was meaning attached to sound, and I don't know how the meanings got there, uh, but but they're there. And so when I heard my song, with all the meanings that were there that I remembered from making it, uh, it was uh, just a fabulous experience. You know, it just felt uh, it just felt great. It was wonderful. That's what I wanted. Now, going a few years later, today when you hear, when you're driving along and you hear a Chilliwack song, how does that make you feel? Well, I'm a lot more blasé about it. <laughs> I, but I think, ah, oh, good, <laughs> good. <laughs> Glad they played it. That's great, you know. And I listen to what the, the the radio station compression does to to our mix. I listen to it technically, you know. I go, uh, how the mix fare on, the, on this station because it varies from from one to another. And I've been very disappointed sometimes, and other times not. So I listen for that kind of stuff and are they playing the live one or are they playing the, you know, nowadays that's what I'm looking for. I want them to play the live one. That's the new one, right? I want them to do that. So I li listen for things like that. I, I know I hear Fly at Night a lot, but do the songs that they play, uh, are you ever surprised by what they play? Uh, you know something, I hardly listen to radio anymore, so I haven't heard very much I haven't heard her songs played all that much okay. in the last, geez, I don't know, 10 years. I hardly ever listen to radio. Going back to Chilliwack and, and the times when you'd actually become huge, how huge was that? I mean, I'm not sure in perspective to the world mm -hmm. how much doing you're doing and whatever. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, it, it was limited. Uh, was uh, we had we had some good success. You know, we had number one record in Canada. We never had number one record anywhere else. We uh, were top twenty in the states. That's that's as high as we ever got. Um, it was not huge. It was not massive. It was not BTO. It was not you know many many people before and after groups have done Canadians have done. Uh, bigger business than Chilliwack did. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, we did our best to make it look as big as we could, and that's what the record company was doing, was trying to make it look as big as they could. And there was some legitimate, you know, real success there. And so yeah. you obviously toured in the States. Yeah. What yeah. was that like? Touring in the States? Um, well, that part of Chilliwack's career was my probably my least favorite in terms of live performance. In the early days, early 70s, we, when we did a lot of jamming, we did a lot of playing, we would uh, blow people off the stage with a jam, a song no one had ever heard, because we knew how to connect with the sort of psychic energy of the room and, and how, to, how to work with it and, and, and bring people in. And then when someone came out and just played a song, it was like, the audience went, well, whatever, where's the popcorn, <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, but then we became one of those kind of bands. In the middle years, we became one of those kind of bands that goes out and plays the song. You know, here's the song, this way we recorded it. Well, we like it. Here's a move, there's a move, you know what I mean? It was that kind of thing, and for me, it was pretty empty. And my whole focus at that time was on making records and what year would producing them. Well, I was... It started in the mid-70s and, uh, you know, uh, with the Dream Stream Stream stuff. It started around that period of time when the band sort of tightened down 
for live performance and that and that policy continued until you know when Brian was in the band it was still that way right to when I put the band uh, on the shelf in 87 pretty much so it hadn't really changed with that was mm -hmm. it that you look back on it you weren't happy with it or while you were doing it you weren't happy with it and that's just the way the industry was and yeah while I was doing it I wasn't happy with it so why would I do it um, I was involved in making records and that took so much energy and so much time to focus on the writing and the production and creating these records. We'd spend, you know, a year making a record or eight months making a record, whatever. Though when we went out to play, uh, that's what we did. We just played the record. It was like, and, it, and I, t I tell you, it was a different band. Uh, when it was, when, it w when, when Brian came in the band, Brian didn't have that free-for-all jamming kind of mentality. That was not what he was into. Um, people might think he was. He did the head pins thing and then gunk, gunk, all this rock stuff and that, but it was very tight. It was very controlled. Um, every note had to be just so. And the jamming thing isn't about that. The jamming thing is not about the note. It's about the feeling. So if you fuck a couple notes up, it doesn't matter because it's about how you communicate. You use the notes and, and you, make, you, you use the music to communicate with people instead of taking the music and making it into a really nice design. That's what making the record was about, was making these neat designs. It was like writing novels. When you, get, when you break it down to 24 track and you start with the kick drum, you get your kick drum sound for a day, you know. Then you work on the snare and after a week you've got a drum track. The, where the fuck's the music, right? But that's how you did it. It was like writing a novel. I imagine people writing a novel and going, how do you do that? You know, it's this thick. It takes them years to write. I mean, where, where's the continuity? I had come from music where it was all about continuity. It was all about you stand up there and you're playing and you get this feeling. And when the feeling starts to happen, I trust and know that the audience can feel it and they get into it too. And we do this thing over... And if I had to stop and say, oop, I broke a string and put another string on, it would, would kill the feeling. But that's when you're making a record, that doesn't kill the feeling. You break a string, oh, okay, stop the tape, and put it back on, you can start up where you were before, nobody knows. You know, like it's different, different ways of making music. And the personnel in the band dictated a lot of that. Brian was a very strong personality. He and I were working together. We were very successful as writers and producers. We could do the thing. We could do that thing that people wanted to hear, you know, but we weren't that kind of live band. So the live band was a picture, you know, something we came out and said, here's the picture, this is what we are. And so for me it was unsatisfying. And when you move back, before Brian was in the band, again it was a personnel thing, because Claire, who was the sax player and the other jazzer in the band, had left. And we were focusing on rock. I wanted to learn more about writing songs. Uh, I wanted to focus on making records and writing songs. So it changed. It just changed. And it was hard. I couldn't get those guys to move into that place. The new band now, I'm having this kind of fun I used to have in the 70s with the new band because I really wanted to get back to that thing of, of the live energy, you know. If I was to ask you what, looking back, what you would have changed, would that be one thing? Or can you talk about anything that looking back now you would have changed about how you did? Yeah, 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 regrets? Um, yeah, I mean, I would... 
we really lost something when we lost that playing band because we didn't blow anybody off the stage anymore for for a good you know I mean I know you went and saw us at a time when we were no longer doing that you saw us with Rush we were just doing this you know if you had seen us like three or four years before that would have been we played Winter Pop 1970 with Johnny Winter and stuff that was the other band people loved that you know we played these these improvisations and long improvisations, and the people were like, "Wow, you know, they're really, really into it," and they didn't know the music. It wasn't they they didn't come to hear the hit from us, you know. Was that difficult? So, like to be playing the hits. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, touring wasn't fun. No. No, it wasn't fun. Not for me. No. No, I, I you know, it was about we were trying to succeed. It was about that's what it was about. You know, it's, uh, uh, we we sort of bought into the whole thing of the record. How, you know, that's that's the record's the thing, and 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 doing what it takes to promote the record. We're on tour to promote the record. I don't feel that way anymore. So in the beginning, you started off thinking playing live was the thing, and at mm -hmm. one point or another, it became making a record. Yeah. And then it became playing the record. Yeah. What would have been the next phase? What would have been? Yeah. When you say would have been, it sounds like you mean... Uh, what was the next phase? What was the next phase? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, the next phase... I tried to get back to the old way after Brian left the band. I did one more record uh, with studio musicians. Uh, it was totally a produced thing. It didn't do much because record company went bankrupt anyway before they got a chance to even get into it. Uh, so then I put together a live band, and I got Claire back in the band. He's the sax player, <coughs> and he was my main partner way back in the collectors and stuff. And we, we just wanted to play, so we hooked up with the Feldman, and they booked us across the country, but they booked us in clubs. And all the, cl and the clubs are all, it was just about getting drunk and getting laid. That's what it was about, you know, for the people in the club. It wasn't about music for them at all. So we were, it was just stupid. We beat our heads against that one for a couple of years, and then I just packed it in. From 85 to 87, we did that. Uh, it was soul-destroying work, and uh, I just said, to hell with Chilliwack, I'm not doing this anymore. And, and then the acoustic thing happened with Sherry and Roy, and that was wonderful. Uh, it was so, we would play for audiences that, that wanted to hear music. We'd play in folk clubs and stuff. Uh, and it just made such a difference, you know, it was like, it was, it was great. It was, for me, it was a, a bit of a rebirth. But like I say, I started missing the bass and drums and the electric guitar. So now this new band got formed, but the policy with this band is we get high every night or there's something fucking wrong. And by, high on music. It, either that happens or there's something wrong. In the old band, it didn't matter. It was about, you know, doodly dee 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 in the original band, you had to get high every night. You know, that was, that was the mandate. And we're back to that, and that's what we do. And we play some of the old, we, we, we play some of the old jamming stuff. We there's one tune called 17th Summer that was actually a collector's tune. And uh, it's a jammer, and we, we jam on it every night. It's not the same as it was in the 70s. It's different. But it's wonderful. And I feel like with this band, I just feel like I'm home, you know? That's what it feels like. We just, we just, 
we smoke, you know, and and uh, and it's fun. We we love doing it, and, and so that, then that's the original. You know, that's the original thing. So now I want to write, and I want to make. I want to make new songs, and I want to make new records. But I don't want to lose the other thing, and you know, the the slow turning of the universe continues. It sounds like you never even looked at the possibility of giving up music. Is that correct? Uh, it crossed my mind, but you know, with the whole SoCan thing and all that. I mean, I looked at that possibility that I could get seriously into this whole administrative thing because I really dove into it because SoCan kind of inspired me because it's it's about uh, the rights of of authors. It's not just administration. It's about rights. So. And and authors' right is a is a human right, so it goes all the way back to those very basic things that a person can get inspired about. You know that they, they really they mean something. You know, but it leads to politics. It leads to fractiousness. It leads to divisive you know fights with people who don't want you to have those rights. Blah blah, blah all that kind of stuff. And finally, went, you know what? The amount of headway that I could make doing this kind of work is so small. And I put my whole life into it. And for a few years, I actually did that. I was doing working on SoCan stuff and that stuff basically all day, every day. Um, but the amount of headway I can make is so small and it's so fractious that I don't, I don't this is not what I want to do, you know? It was fascinating. I learned a lot. But I ended up feeling, no, I, I, music is what I want to do. Music feels good when you do it. When you do it right, it feels good. It's nourishing. It makes you whole, you know. So that's the basic uh, thing and that's uh, what I, you know, I, music's been, always been a very personal thing for me. You know, it was uh, from the beginning, like when I, first, when I first started, when I was a little kid, it was about the fact that I couldn't relate to people in, a, in what I thought what looked to me to be a normal way. And the feedback I got from everybody was I was weird. And a uh, weird little kid, you know. And, uh, and probably if I'd been a big kid, I would have dealt with it by, you know, hammering somebody or something, you know. Because I could, it would make me feel like, okay, there's my status. That, that's where I am, you know. You know? But I couldn't do that. And, uh, and I was, uh, and and I hated physical violence anyway. I just hated it, no matter what size it was. I just hated it. And so I needed a way to, to establish myself in the world. And, the, and music was the first thing when I started, when I'd, when I'd play some music, and people would go, oh, people would like it. I felt like I had some kind of an identity. I mean, we define ourselves by everybody else. You know, it's all very well, say you have self-respect, but that self-respect, where does that come from? You know, a lot of it comes from where, what's coming from people around you, you know. Can I ask a sure. question? <clears throat> Learned something today, a bit of a dichotomy with Bill Henderson, and I'd love to find out where you really sit. Um, I think of you and your music as, and this series potentially, as being really good Canadian songs that are sticking around because people grew up with them, for whatever reason, grew up with them, maybe they've heard it 10,000 times, so it's part of their, their brain, don't know. Um, but I think of you and your bands as being uh, songwriters, really good songs. As you got better and better musicianship-wise and more of a producer kind of a guy, these songs became pristine. The production caliber is like phenomenal. 
Baby Blue, uh, Fly at Night, some of those albums, and I'm still dying to get them. I'd like to get that story. So, are just are just like phenomenally good quality songwriting and and production value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing that the, the Bill Henderson that really wants to be is more loose, ragged, jammy, less uh, too loud. Like in in a little bit of sloppiness is good because you're you're crafting a a, a psychic feeling as opposed to delivering these songs which are obviously something you put a lot of time in. I mean these songs are good and they're hanging around not just because of CanCon because people <coughs> love them. So mm-hmm. I'm hearing that you're sort of anti-song a little bit. In no. Okay, how, how would you... That's not really a question. No, it's just that it, what it is is that is that I wasn't able to put the two things together back then, right? I could do one and then I could do the other but I couldn't do them both. Now I feel like I'm doing them both. Although I'm not writing yet, so but but I do feel that I'm taking the songs that that were the pick of the crop over you know basically 20 years of work and playing those every night and really digging it and really getting into each one of those songs in a serious way every, every night. So I feel like there's a blend there of those two things. Um, in terms of presentation, in terms of crea- creating new stuff, I haven't got to that yet. So, yeah. It must have been difficult in '87 when he decided, "That's it, I'm going to give up Chilliwack." And I can imagine having lived the two years where you're very frustrated playing bars and not getting the yeah. attention or whatever. That you you put up with that every day and you realize this is crap, whatever. But mm-hmm. in the end, it must have been very difficult to say, "I'm going to put that away for now." Can you? Elaborate on that feeling or that decision? Uh, yeah, I. Uh, what happened was I, my life kind of exploded because I'd been so frustrated with this song production thing for so many years, <clears throat> where I felt like the needs of the record industry were were more important than my own my own musical needs that uh, I finally exploded and uh, I I blew away my life like I, I uh, my family everything right and I just kind of took off um, I still lived in Vancouver but you know I split up with my wife and uh, had a girlfriend and was going through that that whole thing you know sort of classic in a sense, classic bullshit that, 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 that guys often go through at that age. And, uh, but really, it was about that, all that frustration that I just was not happy with, with the way things were, and I had to find something else. So I was throwing everything away. So throwing away Chilliwack, which is another thing, was no big deal. No, it wasn't a big deal. I didn't feel that way. I just felt like I'm in a new life now. You know, this is exciting. That's how it felt to me. Was I'd, I'd, I'd exploded into a new life. It was really exciting. Uh, I wrote a whole bunch of new songs at that time that are that are I'm quite proud of a lot of them. They're fairly creative songs that may never they've they've been on some UHF albums, but that's as, as far as I've gotten. Actually, it's not true. There's there's one when I sing, which is a just a light little song, but it it um, it got a got an award. What the what the kind of a genie award? That was it for uh, best song in a movie. That year was about, that would have been 80, maybe it was 90, 89 or 90. Best song in a movie, it was Bye Bye Blues, movie Bye Bye Blues. Uh, and that song 
has uh, I'm mean, proud of that song it, it, it happened in an instant I, I wrote it in about the time it takes to sing it pretty much and uh, it's got legs like there's choirs all over the world singing that song it's bizarre you know <laughs> uh, so anyway a lot of things happened uh, during that period of time and, and getting rid of Chilliwack was just uh, it just seemed inevitable it seemed like a burden that I'd finally gotten rid of you know so not taking that a step further when he decided to bring the band back, what was that feeling like? Well, yeah, I, I had invitations over that 10-year period to, to restart the band. You know, every once in a while, someone would phone me up with this big gig and say, you can make all this money, why don't you just, you know, put the band back together? And i go, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And uh, finally, when someone called up, I had been gradually evolving with this feeling that I, I want the drums and the bass. I want the electric guitar again. I'd done some work in the studio just as a hired hand uh, with Jerry and Doug, who were on this in the band, uh, the drummer and bass player in the band. Uh, and we had grooved like crazy in the studio. It was like, wow, I, I love playing with them. I was just playing rhythm guitar, but the, just the groove was just so neat. And uh, so, you know. I got this call, I went, well, maybe I should try it. And I called up Jerry and Doug, they were into doing it. And uh, Roy Forbes was, did it with me as the other guitar player for the first year. And he and I had been working together all the time anyway. I phoned him, I said, what, do you want to do this? Sure. So well, we just did it. And it was just, you know, it was going to be fun and wasn't going to be that serious. And then Roy had other commitments, so um, I got my brother in. And we got more and more serious. We'd be playing. And we'd be wanting to get tighter, we want the thing to sound better, feel better and everything. And we just got more and more serious until it started to develop, I don't know, from the compression or something, it started to develop heat, you know. And, and now it's just like, it's a burning thing. It's, it's very painful for me to have gone for several months without playing a gig with that band. <laughs> I find it interesting. It almost seems like, I mean, I think for songs to last a long time, they have to be good songs. And you obviously yeah. wrote those that you can still hear, they still sound good. And now you're at a point where you can take those songs and also bring in the jamming or the, yeah. the other element of it. If, I, if, if you look back, is there any one particular song that means more to you and that's something special to you? Um, you know, Reno was a very important song for me. It was, uh, actually, it was the first song that was on the first Chilliwack album. And it was really inspired by um, that night with uh, Albert King. That was one of the, there was, there was basically two different things going on in that song, and that was one of them. And, um, and it's a song about um, how we all play a role in, in life, and, and uh, if there's no audience, there's no show. It's like the audience can't come up on the stage and be the performer because you got to have that. You got to have that relationship. You got to have somebody there, and you got to have somebody here, and uh, and that came out of uh, a bunch of things that were going on at the time. But um, but that song uh, has really stuck with the band, uh, and and people like that song. I, I, yeah, I got some strong feelings about that one. Fly Night is another one because it was a song about, again, it was about the audience. It was about doing what I do. It was about playing for people. 
and and uh, the joy of that. When it becomes the joy of that, does it ever become joy of just playing for yourself? When it uh, becomes a business, you know what I mean? When it becomes a business where you're touring, yeah. Do you lose that joy? The contact with the audience? Or no, just playing the guitar in your hotel room, playing by yourself, yeah. and getting enjoyment out of that. Oh yeah. So you always have that. It's oh yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love to play, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, over these few years I've that we've been doing this new version of the van, my guitar playing has evolved. Um, I started watching Stevie Ray and and uh some some D V D stuff I got Stevie Ray Stevie Ray and uh Hendrix. And things just things about the way they held it, the guitar, and the way they gripped it. And I started, and actually, part of it came from from playing Brian's solos because in this new band, I was I had to play some solos that McLeod had, had created, right? And I'm not just jamming on them; I'm playing his solos. And uh, and from that, I I learned some stuff about about grip. Basically, it's kind of physical, but when you when you get it happening, it becomes a conduit for your your feelings and your your ideas and your feelings. So when that conduit's really open and really working, some neat shit happens with guitar, you know. And, and that's what's happen that's what's happening for me now that I that I really like. So yeah, I bring my guitar. So can means I bring my guitar because I got I know I'll be able to find you know twenty minutes, half an hour somewhere I can play, and and try and get you know, reestablish that because every time I reapproach the guitar is sort of not there unless I just played last night. If I do a gig last night, sit down, boom, it's right there. But Otherwise, I gotta find it again and work on it. Are you better player now than you were ever before? Yeah. Or yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I'm not. There's some things I can't do as well as I did because I don't pay as much attention to them anymore. I'm not into the, all the changes the way I was. The chord changes. Frankly, I'm happy to sit on one chord. <laughs> I really don't care about that very much. Uh, I care more. I what I'm looking for is there was a thing that Clapton used to do in the Cream, and I always thought it was Clapton. But I've realized recently that part of it that I was hearing, and his guitar was him, and part of it was the other guys. Because the other guys were so fiery. Ginger and Baker and, uh, I forgot his name, Jack Bruce, were so fiery, and just, they were just like all over the place, right? And Clapton was doing this, I'm a blues player, and I know, the, I know the exact notes to play, and I know exactly how to pick them, and exactly how to get the right sound. And he started doing that, but he's being driven by these guys, and, and and there was something that happened with that that was like, you know, Crossroads. The way he played Crossroads for me was like incredible. I just love that kind of playing. And, and I'm feeling that in my playing, the, the, the ability to make it sing the way he made it sing. You know, he had the beautiful sound that he was getting. Uh, and it was very like a voice, the way, the way he made it work. And so that's what's happening for me. So the chords, I don't care so much. It's, it's like it's the melody. It's the, the way it, the guitar speaks. It's a lot of it is, is the right hand, how you pick different tones out, and the left hand also, you know, so different between acoustic and electric. I've been finding that. I never really realized that until I was back in this version of the band. I always played electric like it was an acoustic guitar with a pickup on it. Now I don't. Now it's like, if I'm going from here to here, you drag your hand. You don't do that on acoustic. You know, mm -mm. Everything's like, your fingers are like this, like a spider, you know? But electrically, you just grab this fucking thing and you, you go like that. And every time you move your hand, it makes a sound. 
And it's all part of it, you know. So uh, it's been fun figuring that shit out. That's great. And I love hearing that because you can tell that there's still passion. I mean, yeah. Um, my final question is can you share with us a very memorable, most memorable moment with Chilliwack? <clears throat> yeah, if I could think of it, <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> I'm old. I'm old, I forget. Uh, no, there were uh, lots of incredible experiences with the band. Um, Was there a moment when you thought, yeah, we've made it? Oh, now that's a funny one because uh, that's such a different kind of great moment. The great moment I was reaching for when you asked for the asked the question was one of those transcendent moments, you know, where where there's, there's times where you are like outside of your body and and you are controlling what's happening, but at the same time, it's just happening, and it's an incredible experience. And you, you and the music just goes like it just gets. Amazing, you know, and the audience, everybody's into it. And those, you know, those, are, but as far as we've really made it, um, I guess, you know, uh, with, with my girl, there was one, okay, here's a neat moment. I was driving uh, in Vancouver in my little car, and I was going to the bank. My girl was number one on the, on the radio in Canada, and it was a summer day, beautiful sunny day in Vancouver, and there was construction on the road that I was on. I had to slow down and, and, and pretty much stop, and there was one of those trailers where the construction guys keep all their gear and everything, and there was a, there was a, a woman doing the, uh, uh, you know, directing traffic, right? She's a nice looking girl and everything. She's directing traffic, and she had a radio hanging on there, and it was playing My Girl, and she was bopping around, you know, getting the traffic through and dancing to it as she, as she you know passed me through and it was really neat. That was very, very neat. That's great. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really All appreciate right. this. All right, man. Thank you.